Good morning to each of you. It's good to be back with you after a couple of Sundays away. You have, we have reached the summit in our study of 1 Corinthians. And Jonathan walked you through chapter 13 the past couple of Sundays. What is, without question, one of the greatest uh, portions of Holy Writ in which the Apostle Paul describes for us the nature of Christian love and love which is ultimately exemplified in the wonderful person of the Lord Jesus Christ. So now we begin the descent and it is a rapid one. The ascent, chapter 1 right through to chapter 13. And we're on the summit, and down we go. And it's simply chapters 14 and 15. And then there's a conclusion to wrap it all up in chapter 16. And so I invite you to follow along now as I read for you the word of the Lord, beginning in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 1. Pursue love. And earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. For one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men, but to God. For no one understands him, but he utters mysteries in the spirit. On the other hand, the one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. The one who speaks in a tongue builds up himself but the one who prophesies builds up the church. Now I want you all to speak in tongues, but even more to prophesy. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues. Unless someone interprets so that the church may be built up. Now, brothers, if I come to you speaking in tongues, how will I benefit you? Unless I bring you some revelation or knowledge or prophecy or teaching. If even lifeless instruments, such as the flute or the harp, do not give distinct notes, how will anyone know what is played? And if the bugle gives an indistinct sound, who will get ready for battle? So with yourselves, if with your tongue you utter speech that is not intelligible, how will anyone know what is said? For you will be speaking into the air. There are doubtless many different languages in the world, and none is without meaning. But if I do not know the meaning of the language, I will be a foreigner to the speaker, and the speaker a foreigner to me. So with yourselves, since you are eager for manifestations of the Spirit, strive to excel in building up the church. Therefore, one who speaks in a tongue should pray for the power to interpret for if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. What am I to do? I will pray with my spirit, but I will pray with my mind also. I will sing praise with my spirit, but I will sing with my mind also. Otherwise, if you give thanks with your spirit, how can anyone in the position of an outsider say, Amen, to your thanksgiving when he does not know what you are saying? For you may be giving thanks well enough. But the other person is not being built up. I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. 
Nevertheless, in church, I would rather speak five words with my mind in order to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. Brothers, do not be children in your thinking. Be infants in evil, but in your thinking be mature. In the law it is written by people of strange tongues and by the lips of foreigners. Will I speak to this people? And even then they will not listen to me, says the Lord. Thus tongues are a sign not for believers, but for unbelievers. While prophecy is a sign not for unbelievers, but for believers. If therefore the whole church comes together and all speak in tongues, and outsiders or unbelievers enter, will they not say that you are out of your minds? But if all prophesy and an unbeliever or outsider enters, he is convicted by all. He is called to account by all. The secrets of his heart are disclosed and so falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. What then, brothers? When you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Let all things be done for building up. If any speak in a tongue, let there be only two or at most three, and each in turn, and let someone interpret. But if there is no one to interpret, let each of them keep silent in church and speak to himself and to God. Let two or three prophets speak and let the others weigh what is said. If a revelation is made to another sitting there, let the first be silent. For you can all prophesy one by one so that all may learn and all be encouraged. And the spirits of prophets are subject to prophets. For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. As in all the churches of the saints, the women should keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but should be in submission as the law also says. If there is anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home. For it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. Or was it from you that the word of God came? Or are you the only ones it has reached? If anyone thinks that he is a prophet or spiritual he should acknowledge that the things I am writing to you are a command of the Lord. If anyone does not recognize this, he is not recognized. So my brothers earnestly desire to prophesy and do not forbid speaking in tongues, but all things should be done decently and in order. So there you have it. First Corinthians chapter 14. Now, as we read this chapter, normally, usually, two subjects emerge that arrest our attention and occupy all of our thinking. They are potentially controversial. They are potentially divisive. I am speaking, obviously, of the gift of Tongues, firstly, look at what Paul says in verse 5. Now I want you all to speak in tongues. You? You? Me? What does that mean? That is an issue that grabs our attention. The second issue is this, the role of women. Look at verse 33. As in all the churches of the saints, the women should keep silent in the churches. What does that mean? Not a sound. Not a peep. 
Not a word, nothing, absolute silence. And so these are two issues. Firstly, the gift of tongues. Secondly, the role of women that are there. We can't, we can't deny them. However much I might like to, we can't sort of sidestep around them, gloss over them. They're there in the text and they are controversial. And because of, I think it's fair of me to say this, because of our preoccupation with the controversial, we normally gravitate to these two things. But here's what I want to make clear at the outset. Neither of them is the main point of the passage. Neither of them. Neither the gift of tongues nor the role of women. They are actually incidental to Paul's main argument. They are actually secondary, tertiary to Paul's main point. I want us to really get that. And so to avoid the pitfall, to avoid the danger of gravitating to and becoming obsessed with what is actually of secondary importance. I am not going to speak to the gift of tongues nor the role of women this morning. Why? Because guess what? I already spoke to the gift of tongues. It was in adult Sunday school class this morning. That is now available or will be available on our church website you can go if you weren't present this morning. You can go if you want to and listen to that or watch that. I am now proceeding on the assumption that you have and that you're able to download everything into the text and I can just motor right through it. The role of women two weeks from today in the adult Sunday school hour, I'm going to speak to that issue. And so the same thing, I am proceeding on the assumption that you've taken the time, if you aren't in the adult Sunday school class, to listen, agree with it, disagree with it, fine. But at least to listen to the Sunday school hour this morning, two weeks from now, in which I do my best to speak to these controversial issues, which are of secondary importance. And that frees me now to do what? Actually preach the point of the passage. Okay? So that is what I'm going to do. To help us understand the point of the passage, the main point. Why is this here in Paul's letter to the Corinthians? Why is this here in God's word? I want you to notice five very simple details. All right. You got hold of my hand. I'm just going to walk you through these five simple details. And if we get these details, we should have a aha moment and get the point of the passage and be able to understand it and apply it. Here's the first detail. Paul uses the phrase earnestly desire in verse 1 and verse 39. That is a literary device known as inclusio, an inclusion. Very common in scripture when the author will use a phrase or a statement as a starting point, he will come full circle and use it again at a later point. And this statement serves as bookends, as parentheses, indicating what? That everything between the statement is a unit and it is to be studied 
understood and applied as a unit, the whole thing. All right, that's the first detail. Second detail is this. Paul uses the phrase building up, edifying, or something very close to it six times. Look at verse three. On the other hand, the one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding. They're building up their edification. That's the first. Look at verse four. The one who speaks in a tongue builds up himself, but the one who prophesies builds up the church. Third reference, right at the end of verse five, so that the church may be built up. The next reference at the end of verse 12, strive to excel in building up the church. At the end of verse 17, being built up. And the last reference, verse 26, at the end of the verse, let all things be done for building up. What does that tell us? It tells us the following. This idea, whatever it is, of building up, of edifying, of encouraging, is Paul's primary concern in the chapter. So we know the chapter is a unit. We now know what the main theme is, this idea of building up. Third detail I want you to notice is this. Paul equates building up with instruction. Verse 19. It's throughout the chapter, just this one reference, so that you get a feel for the point I'm making. Verse 19. Nevertheless, in church, I would rather speak five words with my mind in order to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. So the Apostle Paul equates building up with instruction. The means, in other words, the means by which we build up the church is through intelligible and orderly teaching. Fourth detail I want us to get is this. Paul links building up through instruction, instruction that is intelligible and orderly. He links it to love all the way back to verse one. What is the opening statement? Pursue love. I've just described love for you in chapter 13. As a matter of fact, go all the way back. Can you do it? To chapter 8, verse 1. And this is really what sets him off on his final ascent. He has made the point there. Love builds up. And he's proving it time and time and time again. He reaches the summit. He gives this wonderful description, paints this beautiful portrait of the nature of love. He now issues this command as we embark on the descent right at the start of chapter 14, verse 1. Pursue love. What does this mean? It means I will seek to build up. I will seek to build up how? Through intelligible and orderly instruction. Notice the fifth detail. Paul rejects anything 
anything and everything that undermines the church's main calling, which is to love by building up through intelligible and orderly instruction. That is the point of the passage. He is rejecting anything that undermines the church's main calling, which is to love by building up through intelligible and orderly instruction. Because you see, you know it, if you've been here for any of this series, you know it. That's not what's happening in the church at Corinth. When they get together, there is absolute confusion. When they get together with worship, we can only describe their corporate gatherings with the word chaos. And this chaos, this confusion reveals what? That they're not instructing one another intelligibly and orderly. And they're not instructing one another intelligibly and orderly. Therefore, they're not building one another up. And the fact that they're not building one another up points to what? That they're not loving one another as they ought to love. And the fact that they're not loving one another as they ought to love points to what? They've lost sight of their identity in the Lord Jesus Christ. And they've lost sight of the full significance and the impact that the gospel should have upon their lives. And so his point now is to rectify this. His point is to apply this great principle, love in action. And in the corporate gathering of the church, public worship, how will that love be seen? Be seen? We don't think like this. Paul thinks like this. Well, you're to pursue love. And to pursue love will mean this. You will build one another up. And the means by which you will build one another up is through intelligible and orderly speech. It's not what's happening, in Corinthians, when you get together. And so he embarks on correcting them and bringing some order to their disorder. You got it? That's the point of the passage. And so confusion reigns supreme in their Sunday morning worship hour. And I want to mark, walk you through the marks of this confusion. The causes. Where does it come from? Of this confusion. And then the remedies. For this confusion. So we begin with the marks. There are two. And these two marks. Basically divide the chapter. In two major sections. The first mark is this. There is a disregard. Among the Corinthian believers. Within the Corinthian church. A disregard. For instruction. And so when they get together, it's a free-for-all. And you have people speaking in tongues, multiple people speaking in tongues, a bunch of people speaking in tongues, these la languages unknown to the listeners, and uh, no one is interpreting, no one is, is applying, no one is explaining what is being said, and the result is simply confusion and Chaos, And the reason the Corinthian church is allowing this to happen is because of their disregard for instruction. I mean, you can imagine how confusing it would be, can't you? You can imagine how frustrating it would be. And so you go to Walmart or Lowe's or wherever, and it's time to buy that swing set, right, fellas? And you've uh, bought that swing set and you've got big plans on a Saturday afternoon to put that thing together for the little ones. 
You haul it home, you open up the box, you lay out all the different pieces, bars and seats and chains and screws and bolts all over. There it is all over the lawn. And you pick up that instruction manual. And there it is in Cantonese. Oh, there's Korean. And then there's Italian. No English. What good is that going to do you? It serves absolutely no purpose. No function at all. Why? Because it is unintelligible. Or change the scene. You're traveling in Bulgaria. And you hail a taxi, a cab. And you enter into the back seat. And you say in English, here's where I want to go. And the driver, he or she, responds to you in Bulgarian. And you don't have a clue what he or she is saying. What good will that do? How are you going to get where you want to go when there is unintelligible communication? Porque Deus amou o mundo. Tal maneira. Que Deus seu filho unigênito. Para que todo aquele que nele crê não apareça, mas tenha vida eterna. What did that do for you? Anybody edified other than Lucas? It's Portuguese. Some of the Spanish probably got, Spanish speakers got a few words here or there. What purpose did that serve? I'm speaking into the air. It's completely useless. That's what's going on in the church at Corinth. And it's going on, it's transpiring. Why? Because of their disregard for instruction. The gift of tongues occupies such a central place in their gatherings, but no one is interpreting. Thus, no one understands what's being said. Thus, no one is instructed. Thus, no one is built up. Paul drives home his point of just how absolutely useless this is by comparing and contrasting the gift of tongues and the gift of prophecy. And he tells us, firstly, that they differ in their audience. Verse 2, the one who speaks in a tongue doesn't speak to men. But I guess he speaks to God in some way because no one understands him. It's a language nobody knows Cantonese. But he utters mysteries in, in the spirit. Yes, he's uttering truths, but those truths aren't being interpreted or explained. So for no one gets it. But on the other hand, the one who prophesies. So the one who uses intelligible language, the one who's speaking in English right now and is standing up and is speaking and is speaking forth the will of God speaks to people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. The one who speaks in a tongue builds up himself, maybe in some way, but the one who prophesies, speaks intelligibly, builds up the church. They differ in their audience. They differ, secondly, in their value. Verse 5. Now, I want you all to speak in tongues. Paul isn't disparaging the gift. If you want to know again what I think the gift is, you have to listen to that adult Sunday school class from this morning. But I want you even more to prophesy. The one who prophesies is greater. Well, hold on a second. I didn't think there was any categorization of the gifts. No hierarchy. There isn't any hierarchy. Paul's point is this. The gift of prophecy is intelligible. The gift of tongues that is not translated is unintelligible. Therefore, the gift of prophecy edifies. The gift of untranslated, unapplied tongues does not edify. That makes the gift of prophecy in this particular situation of far more importance and value in the context of the church. Because the church then is built up. He drives this home all the way through to verse 19, emphasizing that prophesying, speaking intelligibly, is far greater than speaking in tongues. 
The tongues are unintelligible. Look at what he says. He gives a couple of powerful illustrations. The first in verse 7. If even lifeless instruments, such as the flute or the harp, do not give distinct notes, how will anyone know it's played? And so there's a violin over there somewhere. I could wander over there right now. I won't, Carter, don't worry. I understand it's a pretty valuable instrument. I won't touch it. But I could pick it up and start plucking it, doing whatever it is you do with the other thing. I don't know what it's called. And uh, how would that sound to you folks? That would be an irritant, not only confusing, and then I were to yell out, sing along. <laughs> That's Paul's point in the passage. Corinthian church, what you're doing makes no sense at all. And he gives another example, verse 8, and if the bugle, I don't think we use bugles when we go into battle anymore, but if the bugle, you can imagine it, there's the cavalry, off they go, gives an indistinct sound. It's not the sound it's supposed to make, or it's just kind of air blowing through the horn, uh, who will get ready for no one's battle? No one's going to get ready for battle because no one knows what that means. So through these illustrations, Paul is just driving home again and again the need for intelligible speech in the public gathering of the church. Therefore, the gift of prophecy, the forth speaking, the speaking forth of the will of God in an intelligible language, intelligible words, it's a far greater value than speaking in tongues. He goes on to say, not only is it unintelligible, but it's ultimately unfruitful. Verse 13, therefore, one who speaks in a tongue should pray for the power to interpret. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind, yeah, I guess my spirit, my whole being is involved somehow, but ultimately it's unfruitful. And so he makes it clear in verse 19, he could not be clearer. Nevertheless, in the church, I would rather speak just five words. Jesus loves me, this I know. Oh, how many is that? Jesus loves me, this I know. Oh, that's six words. Okay, six words. In the church, I would rather speak five words with my mind in order to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. Because it's fruitless. If it is not understood, if the mind does not grasp it, then there's no instruction. And if there's no instruction, there is no building up. And so they differ in their audience. They differ in their value. And ultimately, they differ in their purpose. Verses 20 through 25, brothers, do not be children in your thinking. Be infants in evil. Fair enough. But please, in your thinking, be mature. In the law, it is written. And now he gives an explanation of how the gift of tongues is a sign gift. By people of strange tongues, it's out of the book of Isaiah. And by the lips of foreigners will I speak to this people, and even then they will not listen to me, says the Lord. And so the gift of tongues, a sign for unbelievers. A sign going all the way back to Pentecost. The birthday of the church of the ingathering of the nations into the people of God as people heard God's word proclaimed in their own language and not only a sign of the ingathering of the nations, but frightfully so, a sign of God's judgment upon the nation of Israel, all those who have rejected their Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so they differ in their audience, they differ in their value, they differ in their purpose. 
And by emphasizing, by making these three points, Paul is attempting to correct their disregard for instruction. But there's a second mark of their confusion. Not only a disregard for instruction, but a disregard for order. Verse 26. What then, brothers? When you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or interpretation. Let all things be done for building up. If any speak in a tongue, let there be only two or at most three. And each in turn. And let someone interpret. But if there's no one to interpret, let each of them keep silent in church. Speak to himself and to God. Let two or three prophets speak. Let the others weigh what is said. If a revelation is made to another sitting there, let the first be silent. For you can all prophesy one by one. So that all may learn and all be encouraged. And the spirits of prophets are subject to prophets. For God is not a God of confusion. But of peace. And so not only are these Corinthian gatherings on a Sunday morning, let's imagine, not only are they marked by a disregard for instruction, that is intelligible instruction, they are marked by a disregard for order. You know how serious this is, right? You know how serious this can be. I think I've shared this with you before. Years ago, Allison and I lived for a short time in Luanda in Angola. And I was teaching at a a small Bible college outside of the city. And each morning, crack of dawn, I had to get in the Land Rover and drive to this college through the city of Luanda. Traffic lights? Uh Uh-uh. Stop signs? No. It was an absolute free-for-all. Rush hour. Morning rush hour. Uh, Policeman directing traffic? No. No, 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 no. It was simply survival of the fittest. I was in a big metal Land Rover that had been through the wars, I think. It was dented all over, so I had no problem exerting my influence out there as I made my way through the city. But the absolute chaos, because of no order, that's Paul's point when it comes to these meetings. They are marked by disorder. Firstly, they aren't interpreting. Here's how the disorder is seen or, or, or experienced. Firstly, they aren't interpreting the tongues, verses 27 and 28, so that people can understand what's being said. That's a mark of disorder. Secondly, they aren't discerning what the prophets say in verse 29. People are just speaking, but no one is weighing it. No one is asking the big question, well, is this right or wrong, true or false? Thirdly, they aren't exercising self-control. When those speaking in tongues participate, even when prophets participate, they're all just kind of standing up and it's one big noise. And so what's Paul's point in verse 29? No, let two or three prophets speak and let the others weigh what is said. If a revelation is made to another sitting there, let the first be quiet and sit down. Order. There must be order. Enough of this disorder and confusion and chaos. Not only are they marked by an unwillingness to interpret the tongues, an unwillingness to discern what is said, an unwillingness to exercise self-control, but scandal of all scandals. Women are speaking. Women are speaking. That's what he says. Don't stare at me like that. It's what he says. (laughs) It's the Bible. It's the text. Verse 33, for God is not a God of confusion, but of peace, as in all the churches of the saints, The women should keep silent 
in the churches. For they are not permitted to speak. But should be in submission as the law also says. You've got to wait two Sundays from now. We're going to address this head on as fully as I know how in the adult Sunday school hour. Verse 35. If there is anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home. For it is shameful for a woman to speak in the church. Let me just give you a brief preview in the context. What has he been discussing? He's been discussing the prophets. He's been discussing the order in which the prophets speak. And he's been discussing the necessity to weigh what is said. He then throws out there this admonition. Let the women be silent. Then he brings in the husbands. Put it all together. What seems to be going on? I'm going to unpack this in far greater detail. If the Lord should tarry two weeks from now. Far greater detail. What seems to be going on is simply this. These sisters are violating the law going all the way back to the book of Genesis and that order which God instituted at creation, whereby he made the woman to be a helper for her husband. And that implies certain roles and certain responsibilities. Paul is not saying you must be silent. You cannot say anything. But there seems to be some sort of circumstance which necessitates this warning, this admonition, which in the context seems to be that they are exercising authority by daring to act as judge and jury regarding what is said. Maybe even their husband has stood up. And maybe even their husband has said something. And then his wife has dared to what? Uh Uh-uh, honey. Nope, I don't think so. And publicly embarrass or humiliate him. And so Paul inserts this admonition here. It is leading to disorder. Disorder because you're not interpreting the tongues. It's unintelligible. It's confusing. It's just these notes. So it's an irritant. Confusion because you're not taking time to weigh what is said. You're not exercising self-control. It's a free-for-all. And the sisters in in our midst, they're, they're, they're assuming a responsibility that is not theirs. And that too is contributing to this disorder. And Paul's point seems to be this. All speech in the corporate gathering of the church must be restricted and governed and judged by this one principal concern. Does it build up through intelligible and orderly instruction. If it doesn't, it's spurious. If it doesn't, it is actually completely antithetical to the very nature of Christian love. Disorder. Antithetical to the essence of Christian love. Those are the two marks. Four causes. As we shift gears, overdrive. We're going to move quickly now. Four causes. Number one, the church is plagued by a deficient view of the gifts. A deficient view of the gifts. Look at verse 12. So with yourselves, since you are eager for manifestations of the Spirit. This seems to be part and parcel of the problem. That when they come together, they're craving what they think to be the supernatural. They're craving the novel. They want to see the exceptional and they just want to hear these tongues, these languages. Well, who cares what's being said? I I just want this manifestation of the spirit. 
They want people standing up and prophesying. They want everybody participating. And who cares if anybody's being instructed? Who cares if anybody's being built up? No, all we crave is what we think to, is or perceive to be these manifestations of the power of the Spirit of God among us. And they have a completely twisted view of the very purpose of the gifts. Friends, the gifts are not self-serving. The gifts aren't to make us feel good about ourselves. The gifts aren't part of our identity. We do not personalize the gifts. The gifts actually aren't about us. Our spiritual gifts serve but one purpose, to build up others. That's not what they're concerned about. And they have this complete deficient view of the gifts. Secondly, they have a deficient view of the mind. Back to verse 19. Nevertheless, it's a profound statement. In church, I would rather speak five words with my mind. You talk to some Christians today, it's almost as if they despise the mind. Friend, you can't grow as a Christian without your mind. I'm going to say it. Christianity is a cerebral religion. It necessitates the mind. It's built on the faith once for all delivered to the saints. That faith must be understood. It must be memorized, learned, and applied. And this all comes by means of the mind. Paul, oh, please hear me, I beg you. Paul never, ever speaks of the Holy Spirit directly touching the soul. He never, ever contrasts the work of the Holy Spirit and the exercise of the mind. He never conceives of a spirituality without the mind. Romans 12, we are to be renewed in the spirit of our minds. On the contrary, for Paul. The Holy Spirit works through the mind to edify us and sanctify us. Oh, please hear this. I offer it for what it's worth. We are not to pursue a religious experience. We are to grow up in the knowledge of the truth. As Christians, we are not to pursue a religious experience. Scripture doesn't offer us that. It calls us to grow up, to mature to develop into Christ-likeness, to grow up in our knowledge of the truth. But they have a deficient view of the mind. Thirdly, and perhaps most seriously, they have a deficient view of God. Verse 33, Paul feels the need to insert this, what is not a passing statement, it's certainly central to his argument here. Uh, God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. He is a God of order. What have the Corinthians fallen into? They've fallen into a pagan view of God. The chaos and the disorder and the confusion. They think this is God. They think this is God working. It's reminiscent of what the Lord Jesus says back in the Sermon on the Mount, right? In conjunction with the Lord's Prayer. He warns them not to offer up his disciples. Don't heap up empty phrases. Vain repetition. Like the Gentiles. Why? Because that's a Gentile view of God. That's a pagan view of God. This idea of a loss of self-control, disorder, confusion, chaos. No, that's paganism. Our God is a God of order. He's a God of peace. It goes all the way back to the creation narrative. He took that which was void and empty. And what did he bring to it? Order. And he entrusted to Adam and Eve. What did the devil do? He introduced unbelievable disorder. Friend, in the home, in the church, and as the old Puritans used to say, in the commonwealth, 
whenever you encounter disorder, I guarantee it, the devil is lurking somewhere behind. Our God is not a God of disorder. He is a God of order, a God of peace. Oh, they have a deficient view of the one whom they serve. Fourthly, they have a deficient view of spirituality. Verse 36, here Paul is being very sarcastic. Or was it from you that the word of God came? Hmm. He's basically saying to them, who, who do you think you are? Was it from you, Corinthian church, that the word of God came? Or are you the only ones it has reached? Oh, your understanding of spirituality is so skewed. Verse 37, if anyone thinks that he is a prophet, or spiritual, that's you guys, you think you're a prophet and spiritual. Well, it's time for you to acknowledge that the things I am writing to you are a command of the Lord. This is so serious. Verse 38. And this just rubs us the wrong way today because we are preoccupied with being nice. Nice, I'm not even sure, is a biblical paradigm. I'm not even sure it's a biblical category. Oh, I've thrown that out there. I'm going to have to come back to it at some point in the future. But anyway... <laughs> If anyone does not recognize this, what does it mean? He's not recognized? He's to be shunned. He's to be shunned. That's how serious this is. The truth is at stake. The testimony and witness of the church is at stake. And if you won't submit, Paul says, to what I am saying, then there is, there's nothing left here than for you to not be recognized. Oh, it might seem harsh. For the apostle Paul, it is absolutely necessary, essential for the health of the church. Those are the four causes. And now quickly, the three remedies. They're inseparable. Three inseparable remedies to the confusion that plagues the Corinthian church. We've just seen the first, based on verse 37, a desire to submit. A desire to submit. The second is all the way back in verse 26, a desire to build up. Last statement, verse 26, I really in, in many ways think this is the defining statement in the entire chapter. Let all things be done for building up. And the third part of this remedy, a desire to love. All the way back to verse 1, pursue love. They're inseparable. A desire to submit will mean what? A desire to edify and build up. Build up how? Through intelligible and orderly instruction, thereby getting their house in order. And where that desire is in place, Paul's thinking, what? Love is now active because love builds up. A desire to love leading to a desire to edify leading to a desire to submit. And as we just glance back into chapter 13, this is what is never too far from the forefront of Paul's mind. This love which he has described as exemplified in Christ Jesus himself. Fourth verse, Christ is patient and kind. Christ does not envy or boast. Christ is not arrogant or rude. Christ does not insist on his, his own way. He is not irritable or resentful. Christ does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. 
Oh, Christ bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. Oh, church at Corinth, now pursue love. Christ Jesus, live out your identity in him. Oh, he manifested his love by assuming our humanity. He manifested his love by redeeming us by his blood baptizing us with his spirit and incorporating us into his body. He manifested his love by ascending on high from where he distributes gifts to the church for Paul. Oh, get this. This is the punchline. This is the conclusion for Paul. The deepest spiritual experience. Are you experiential? You want a religious experience? Here we go. Don't say I never talk about experience. Here we go. The deepest spiritual experience is following Christ by giving ourselves in love for the purpose of building up the body of Christ through the proper use of the spiritual gift. I will repeat it again. It is our conclusion for Paul. The deepest spiritual experience is following Christ by giving ourselves in love for the purpose of building up the body of Christ through the proper use of our spiritual gifts. Now, our God and glory above, as always, we pray for understanding of these things. May you grant to us a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of you and in the knowledge of your word. We pray that you give us wisdom in our application. Give us fortitude and enlarge our faith, hope, and love, we do pray. Our Father, we thank you for this gathering of believers. We thank you for your presence among us. And we pray that you would indeed fill us with your spirit. We pray that we would indeed manifest the character of Christ. His love for us might be seen in our love for others. And may this love be tangible as we strive to build one another up in the faith. In Christ's name we ask it. Amen.